My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Donald Pratt and Peter Gose. From colonial violence, to slavery, to camps, to apartheid, Western states have always found ways to inflict unjust suffering and violence on those marked in some way as other, while claiming a cloak of fairness and rules followed. The form and focus of such infliction of harms shifts over time, so, even though it didn't start then, the targeting of Muslims and of people read to be Muslim in the West increased dramatically after September 11, 2001. Though nominally done under a banner of fighting terrorism, the amped-up racist marginalization of entire communities rapidly reached a point that one prominent Canadian scholar, Shireen Razak, has described as, quote, the eviction of Muslims from Western law and politics, end quote. There are many ways this has played out, but one is in the targeting of specific individuals by national security state measures based on fitting a profile or on some tenuous chain of connections rather than anything resembling concrete, publicly shared evidence. One such case is that of Ottawa academic Hassan Diab. At the request of French authorities, he was arrested in Canada in 2008 under suspicion of involvement in a bombing that happened in 1980 in Paris. He denied the charges, and he and his support committee, Justice for Hassan Diab, fought efforts to extradite him to France. In the course of doing so, it became ever more clear that the case against him was so flimsy and contradictory that it would not stand up even under the imperfect scrutiny and standards of a Canadian criminal trial. But the combination of a national security infrastructure that is allowed within the rules of the system to do all sorts of horrific things with little transparency or due process, and a Canadian extradition system that has incredibly low standards of evidence and process, much lower than a criminal trial, culminated in Diab's extradition to France this past November. There, he faces anti-terror laws, courts, and practices that are well known for questionable due process, deference to state interests, valuing secrecy over justice, and violations of rights that many of us assume we can take for granted. Pratt and Gose are friends of Diab's, and they have been centrally involved in his support committee. They talk with me about this Kafkaesque injustice, the details of the shoddy process and highly dubious case Diab has been facing, their work to support his struggle, and the new phase of that work now that Diab sits in a French jail. I spoke to Pratt and Ghost by Skype to phone from California and Ottawa, respectively. My name is Donald Pratt. I live in uh, California, and I've been involved in Hassan Diab's case since it started in November of 2008 and a member of the support committee over the years. I got to know Hassan back in the 1980s when we met at graduate school in Syracuse, New York, and we stayed in touch over the years. And knowing him for such a long time, I can say with the firmest conviction that we're talking about a person who would not have any kind of involvement in the things he's accused of. 
I'm Peter Ghost. I teach anthropology at Carleton University. I was chair of the Department of Sociology and Anthropology when Hassan was hired in 2007, also when he was arrested in November of 2008. I've been a founding member of the support committee and involved ever since and got to know him quite well over the course of, you know, all of the consequences of his arrest and I'm absolutely convinced of his innocence, not only by his personal demeanor, but by all of what came out during the extradition hearing in court. Hassan is, well, he's a sociologist by profession, by trade. He's taught in universities and colleges throughout North America and also overseas. And Peter and I both had lots of opportunities over the years to talk with him informally. As a person, he's a very outgoing, friendly, a generous soul by any standard, and, you know, very interested in discussions about sociology, intellectual discussions, discussions about current events. The kind of person who, if you run into them in the elevator, you know, usually people will just have that polite non-attention. He will look at you and say hi and I hope you're having a good day. Just that kind of a person, very personable. I have to say also that in all the years I've known him, I've never seen him show a bias towards anyone based on their background or anything. It's like always treating everybody with respect. Yeah, I would very much concur with all of that and add to it that he's actually got a tremendous sense of humor and very, very open-minded. So he is you know, interested in people, interested in what's going on in the world, a very warm person. The accusations are that he is responsible in some way for the bombing of a synagogue on Rue Copernic in the fall of 1980 in Paris. As we go through the evidence, we'll see that there's some issues about those accusations, but essentially that's what the accusations amount to. How did he find out about them? Well, he was teaching at the University of Ottawa in October of 2007, and all of a sudden somebody started showing up in the back of his classroom, snapping flash photographs of him and doing things that were rather disruptive. And so at the end of the class, Hassan asked for an explanation, and the reporter identified himself as being affiliated with the newspaper Le Figaro in Paris, and then explained that he was suspected of the Rue Copernic synagogue bombing in 1980. So that was the first that Hassan had ever heard of this. And it, needless to say, caused quite a stir in his class. A whole chain of events was unleashed by that appearance of that reporter in his class. It was over a year later that he was finally arrested. During that time, he was followed very conspicuously, not only on foot, but by vehicle and traffic. So he was tailed in ways that were quite obvious and I think designed to let him know that he mm -hmm. was being tailed. And there was an attempt to break into his apartment as well. And people waiting for him at the foot of the elevator or outside the door of his apartment all the time in ways that were fairly obvious. He right. was being tailed in ways that were designed, I think, to spook him, but he didn't spook. Of course, initially he was quite perplexed by it. I think in the context of hearing these accusations from the Le Figaro reporter, he started to suspect that there were French agents following him. We eventually found out that, in fact, the RCMP was doing this work for France. And what he did was what you would expect any normal person to do. It's just that he started talking with a lawyer to try and get some advice. He reported these incidents to the police and tried as best he could to continue conducting his life in a normal way. 
although that, of course, became quite difficult. It was a very elaborate takedown kind of arrest. It was, again, done with high SWAT team. The, you know, SWAT team, police cars, flashing lights and sirens, all to get this slight unarmed man who came quite willingly, but it was done with maximum fanfare, and he was taken off to the detention center with great fanfare and, I would say, triumphalism in the media. The first lawyer that Hassan had worked with stayed on the case through the initial arrest in November 2008 and the bail hearing that followed within weeks after that arrest, and that bail hearing did not go well. At that point, Hassan changed to a new attorney, and that attorney is actually still with us. It's Donald Bain, and he managed through a Herculean effort to get a new bail hearing, and then we won that bail hearing, and then basically from April 1st of 2009, until Hassan was extradited in November of last year, he was on bail. He had very serious, very severe house arrest conditions that included most notably the requirement that he pay about $2,000 per month for his own GPS monitoring. This, by the way, caused so much outrage amongst supporters and the public more generally that it became a rallying point around Hassan and became a, also a basis for getting folks to help to defray those costs. Was it in that initial stage that the support committee first came together? It was very much an emergency in which people close to Hassan had to respond initially. There wasn't really a committee until we got him out on bail and we were over the initial shock and crisis and necessity of getting him out on bail. People like Don and I got involved because we already knew him and really there were very few of us initially and there were no meetings, no committee, nothing like that. Once we got him out on bail and once there was an interval between him coming out on bail and the extradition hearing beginning, at that point we were in a position to start organizing, getting other people involved. And the committee grew slowly during that time. I would say that the committee emerged very organically. I think also once bail was granted, there were a substantial number of people who stepped forward in the community to help cover the sureties. And those folks, I think, too, to some extent, began to form the nucleus of the support committee. The other thing that spurred it along was that once Hassan was out on bail, he began to teach at Carlton again over the summer. And as soon as that hit the media, the Carlton administration removed him from the classroom and bought him out of the class, essentially. And this created a big media furor, and it got the attention of everyone in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at Carlton. There was a signed statement of two-thirds of the members of the department denouncing this move on the part of the administration and expressing solidarity with Hassan. We were duly demonized in the media, most notably by the Ottawa Citizen during that period, but that certainly served to further publicize the case. I think another phase of getting people on board was when there started to be more court hearings and people would come, you know, because they were curious or interested in knowing about the case, or they heard about it from a friend. Some representatives of the Ottawa Raging Grannies started to get involved. And the kinds of things that were coming out in the court were so jaw-dropping that it really started to make people say, hey, what's going on here? And then there was more of a tendency to rally around Hassan and defend his cause. That's absolutely right. 
Of course, the lingering question in everybody's mind is, you know, did he really do it? And once the extradition hearing got underway, the answer to that question became more and more evident that he hadn't, and the absolutely concocted nature of the case was exposed layer by layer during that very long extradition hearing. So that set people's minds at ease quite a bit more. But it's also true, like Don said, that raging grannies, members of the Unitarian congregation in Ottawa, and just interested members of the community started to show up, and really that's where the nucleus of what is now the support committee formed. So tell me about those things that started to emerge during those hearings that made it clear to you that the charges against him were fabricated or false or something. Where to begin? <laughs> uh, let's see, we've got the fingerprints, the handwriting, the intelligence, uh, whether or not he's Palestinian, whether or not he has a pseudonym Amr. I mean, it, the list just goes on and on. A lot of those points actually centered around the way France had essentially concocted a theory about the crime and about Hassan's supposed involvement in it. And even on the meager materials that were available to our side from the French, we could see contradictions, flagrant contradictions in the kinds of things they were saying. As one example, in the space of um, 29 days, the uh, French magistrate essentially told two completely opposite stories about a piece of evidence. There's a passport that Hassan lost years ago and that does show entry stamps in and out of Spain, no entry stamps into France. Initially, they said, oh, the bombers came into France using their real passports. But then, of course, we looked at that and said, um, dudes, there's no stamps showing entry or exit to France. And so then they, like within uh, 29 days, they completely reversed themselves and said, oh, no, the intelligence tells us that they came into France using false passports. It became very clear with examples like this that the French could basically say, we have this intelligence that you can't see, and this is what it tells us. And they could tell completely contradictory stories about it. And what was also really jaw-dropping was the way the extradition judge would just let these things go. What was really shocking was the inability of the French to come up with a coherent narrative about what is alleged to have happened. What is Hassan supposed to have done? Was he the person who actually delivered it was responsible for detonating the explosive? How did he get into the country? How did the team of terrorists leave the country? Multiple versions of all of this. What we were presented with was described by Donald Bain, his lawyer, as an intelligence dump, just a splat of information that was not internally consistent, didn't tell a clear story of any kind, nor did the French try to extract a clear story out of it. They never felt a need to actually say what he is supposed to have done. The real challenge that they had, beyond telling a coherent story, was actually showing that he was there. Locating him at the scene of the crime was the big issue that they faced and continue to face. And so in November of 2008, there was a French request that Hassan be fingerprinted. The request was done, and again, in very triumphal terms, you know, we are confident that this will crack the case wide open and that this will be key to the resolving of the extradition hearing and so on. So Hassan was fingerprinted by the RCMP. And it turned out that his fingertip prints and palm prints did not match a signed confession of the presumptive bomber for shoplifting in Paris at the time. 
nor did his palm prints match those that the presumptive bomber left on the windshield or window of the vehicle that was used to deliver the explosives to the Rue Copernic. They had thought that they could place him at the scene of the crime by fingerprints, but it turns out the evidence there was negative. France chose not to enter that exculpating evidence into the record, and that was permissible, sadly, under Canadian extradition law. So what did they have to fall back on? A handwriting analysis. So they went ahead and got various documents that they thought Hassan had signed, some of them from his time when he was a graduate student at Syracuse in New York. They got these documents and tried to compare them to two things that the presumptive bomber had signed. One was a hotel registry card, I believe, with five block printed words on it. And the other was this signed a confession. The presumptive bomber was thought to have shoplifted a pair of pliers, I believe it was, from a hardware store. He was caught and made to sign a confession, but they didn't realize at the time that he was likely the prime suspect in the bombing, so he was released. Anyway, so that signed confession is the other source document that Hassan's handwriting samples were to be compared to. It turns out some of the samples that were collected from Hassan weren't written by him, but by his wife at the time. So the handwriting analysis, uh, the first iteration of it, turned out to be a complete farce that was revealed as such in court, and the French had to withdraw it. They were then retrenched around samples taken from Hassan that he actually wrote, came up with exactly the same conclusion as they'd come up with before, dead certain, you know, that he was the author, just as they were dead certain that both he and his previous wife had been the authors of, of the things of the first time around. A long period of the extradition hearing was spent listening to world-class experts in forensic document analysis, handwriting analysis, who destroyed the methodology that had been used to reach these conclusions. And the competence of the French handwriting analysis was called into deep, deep question. The, the judge even acknowledged this. In the end, however, the judge decided that while he couldn't see a fair conviction resulting from the use of this evidence, it was something more than nothing, and therefore had to go to trial in his view. And it was only on that basis that he was committed for extradition. So it's on that incredibly slender and ultimately, we believe, in court, you know, demolished argument that he was placed at the scene of the crime. We're yeah. not allowed to argue that how can you possibly say that he authored the handwriting on the confession, but the fingerprints he left were somebody else's. You know, it's a logical contradiction. The handwriting matches, but the fingerprints don't. This is an absurd argument, but it was the kind of mockery that was made of our court. Tell me a little bit more about what it is about the extradition rules that made all of this okay somehow. Basically, Canadian standards of evidence do not apply in extradition hearings. The evidentiary standard is so low that Canada basically hands people over to other countries based on evidence that would not be acceptable in Canadian courts. That includes everything from hearsay to perhaps intelligence as well, which could be the product of torture. The legal issue here was how to understand the concept of manifest unreliability, which is the threshold for an extradition judge throwing out the case. The way this has been interpreted in British Columbia is if an extradition judge weighs the evidence ballistically and finds that, you know, in something like the manner of a preliminary hearing in a criminal case, and finds that it just doesn't hold water, then they have the right to deny the extradition request. 
In Ontario, there's been a divergent tradition which insists that every piece of evidence has to be knocked out on its own and nothing left standing for a case to be manifestly unreliable. So the way we interpret Justice Manger's ruling was that he thought that on the whole the case didn't hold water and that there would be basically no prospect of conviction in a fair trial. But that the way the Ontario Court of Appeal had been interpreting the Ferris decision demanded him to go piece by piece through all the evidence. And if all pieces of evidence couldn't be entirely eliminated, then there was grounds for extradition. The threshold for extradition seems to be that you can actually be extradited on a lower standard of evidence than a preliminary hearing for a criminal mm -hmm. charge in Canada. So it's almost enough that there be an accusation. And if there's anything, a smidgen of evidence or something that can be construed as evidence to back the request up, then extradition will happen. The requesting state has all the deference of the courts and the Canadian citizen who's wanted can have their constitutional yeah. charter rights completely overridden if there's even a construable bit of evidence that can be brought to bear. And this can mean extradition to a jurisdiction like France that has anti-terrorist laws that violate our charter, whose habeas corpus provisions would violate our own charter. And, you know, has, some, has up to two years to moulder in jail in France before he has to be charged, and maybe even then he won't be because of French anti-terrorism laws. So it's been extremely upsetting to see how skewed the balance of that law is in favor of the requesting state and how little chance the Canadian has to uphold his or her charter rights. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting that there's these divergent interpretations of the extradition law in Ontario and British Columbia. And we thought that, especially since this does go to fundamental rights and freedoms, that the Supreme Court of Canada would take an interest in wanting to resolve this issue. Obviously, they didn't want to do that because they chose not to hear the case, and that abruptly ended the process in Canada. So tell me about the activities of the support committee during the years of process around the extradition. There have been many and various. The core activity, I think, has been fundraising because it's very, very expensive to fight a case like this. So that's been a staple. We've also focused a lot on public education, so we've done events Indeed. where we have tried to get this part of the story out. We've done a lot of work on contacting experts in extradition law, contacting human rights organizations to get them involved in the case. We've been very successful in doing that. We've also spent quite a bit of time contacting, sometimes successfully, sometimes not, MPs about this case to make them aware of what's going on. And we've spent a lot of time in court backing Hassan up and recruited sureties to keep him out on bail. And we've written letters and maintained a website. So it's been quite a diverse array portfolio of activities that we've had. I think it's been a very incremental effort. And I think a lot of the emphasis has been on the public education part. I mean, Scott, you've heard us talk about the legal issues and the evidentiary issues in this case. It's like it's a real challenge to do this as an elevator speech. You know, there's so much that you need to explain and set the context for people to understand. And of course, we haven't even gotten into the larger issues of the culture now with all the hysteria and paranoia around uh, anything with the word terrorism. So the public education piece has been really important. 
And that, I think we've seen it bear fruit because we've managed to be able to get the word out to a lot of people and we've heard from a lot of folks across Canada, both individually and in various progressive organizations, support for Hassan. Another area where we've been successful in Canada to shift the narrative has been in the media. I mean, when the case first came out and you had that SWAT team raid and all that, of course, the story was all just straight from whatever the French narrative was. Over time, we saw a more informative and fair kind of representation of the story in Canada. So that whole trajectory and change in the media narrative in Canada was something that the support committee was involved in. And, of course, Hassan was extradited back in November. So it's a new phase of organizing for the support committee, one in which folks in Canada and the United States are trying to influence, interact with a process that's going on in France. Tell me a bit about how you think that might work, about the things that you are going to be doing to try and intervene in support of Hassan. We're trying to build up from the ground level. We need people who are informed about the case, who are there, who are able to intervene in the media. We have a number of names and organizations that we're following up with, and it's just that is going to take time. We'll certainly try to do as much as we can, as soon as we can, about intervening in the media there. But we also have to be realistic that what changed things in the Canadian case was once there was an extradition hearing and reporters could go to court and hear just how bad, how weak the case was. We can still do a lot here. There's certainly still a need for money. And so we have not stopped fundraising. We will continue to do that. It'll be necessary to retain the services of a good lawyer in Paris to do that. There's a whole labor of getting out into the French conversation, all of the things that were revealed slowly over time here about the weakness of the case. So we can still contribute a lot from this side of the Atlantic, but there are also limits. So we need to continue our work, but also to expand and collaborate with new people in France. The fundraising is still very important, and we've been largely successful in getting our supporters to help us out with things like paying for the retainer for a French lawyer. The other thing that comes to mind to me is that Hassan is a Canadian citizen, and the Canadian government still has obligations to that citizen, regardless of whether he's in Canada or somewhere else. And there may come times when Canadians collectively who understand this case and appreciate the issues would be called upon to put some pressure on the Canadian government to do its job, you know, to make sure that they are observing what's happening, that they're making sure that Hassan's conditions of incarceration are being monitored, to make sure that he's being treated well. And I think that's a role that Canadians can still be involved in is being that kind of collective voice to put some pressure on the Canadian government to remind them of the government's responsibilities to one of its own. You have been listening to my interview with Donald Pratt and Peter Gose, who are members of Justice for Hassan Diab. To learn more about the case and the struggle, go to justiceforhassandiab.org. And he spells his name H-A-S-S-A-N-D-I-A-B. That's justiceforhassandiab.org. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca. 
I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.